0: I'm Linnea. And I like Death by DVD. It's a statement.
1: This is Death by DVD. This is Death by DVD. <laughs>
0: Do you ever fantasize about listening to Hank?
1: You are listening to Death by DVD, and I am your host, Hank, the world's greatest. I'm back with another hoot of an episode. Would be a hoot and a holler, but we don't have a holler this time. It's just a hoot of an episode. I get asked all the time, You know what, Hank, why don't you do something more recent on Death by DVD? What's up with all them old movies? Why can't you do something a little bit more in touch with the times? So you know what? I took that into thought. This episode, we're going to be talking about a recent movie. Well, recent right now. It's 2021, and this movie came out in 2020, so, you know, depending on when you listen to this, it's still fairly recent. But there's a catch. Despite it being a recent movie, it takes place in 1983. So, haha, found a way around it. And, you know, I have no problems with recent movies at all. It's just more fun to talk about the older ones. This week's episode is all about The Final Interview by Fred Vogel. And I gotta say, you know, this was a movie that I was excited to see. This is something that I saw the trailer for when, you know, the trailer came out. I was excited for it, I wanted to see it on a big screen, and I just didn't, I wasn't able to travel and do it at that time period. So finally when the movie came out, I was really, really, really excited to be able to get a copy. No matter what. It wasn't one of those things that, uh, it was, you know, I'm gonna put this on the show, this has got to go on Death by DVD. I was just really excited to see it. And then when I did, my immediate thought was, wow, this would be perfect for Death by DVD. So, here we are. On Death by DVD. You know... It's my time, and it's your time. So what that really means is it's our time.
0: You know, I've been thinking about this, Mr. Han. If I'm here and you're here, doesn't that make it our time? So now that
1: we're gonna spend some time together, before we get into the movie, I want to talk about Fred Vogel. Now I know a lot of our audience is going to be familiar with Fred Vogel and may know who he is already, but not everyone will, not everyone does. And some of the things we're going to talk about later, you know, primarily his newest movie, it might be helpful if you know a little bit about him, or know who he is in general, if you already don't. And hey, if you know everything there is to know about Fred Vogel, I don't know, fast forward through this, or listen to it, you might learn something you don't know. This will be brief. And I know when I say that, everyone cringes and goes, Sure, brief, Uh uh-huh, like you're capable of doing something briefly. But for real, this isn't going to be a whole long-winded thing. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about Fred and some of his previous films, and then we're going to jump right in. Okay, so a little bit of history on Fred Vogel. Frederick von Vogelhausen was born 820 AD. He was a Viking Age warlord who, with the help of his people, helped conquer what would later become Saxony. After settling, he begot a son who was known as a skilled ironsmith, Who begot a son and interestingly enough 24 hours later and then finally in 1976 fred vogel was born in new jersey where he would later relocate to pittsburgh and make it his home and the center for his filmmaking okay so now that we finally got through the vogel family history to fred Let's talk about this guy. And and I'm by no means, like, the authority on the history of Fred Vogel and his previous work. So don't take this as, like, the official Charles R. Cross biography, okay? 2001, a little movie called August Underground. Fred Vogel self-released this on VHS. The film's sequel, August Underground, Mortem, I think is probably the most legendary of Fred's earlier work. Maybe the most well-known of his work. We'll get to all that in just a little bit. You've got Fred Vogel, Jeremy Cruz, Krusty Wiles, my beloved departed brother killjoy and michael todd schneider better known as michael maggot all these cats together they did august underground's mortem and in and around this period fred toured with necrophagia in europe killjoy's band and shot some videos for him amazing work really really awesome stuff killjoy lives always and forever and then after this fred did a film called the redstone tower following that august underground's penance murder collection volume one we're into 2009 at this point cella tersica came out in 2010 and then the final interview which was, was filmed in around 2017, 16, 18. The, the actual release, I believe, is 2020, so, you know, still, it's a new movie. Now, some of you out there in Radioland may remember many, many, many moons ago, we actually had Fred on this very program to discuss Celotersica Around 2010, it was right when it came out. I may be wrong, but we were one of the, the first people to reach out and want to have a discussion about the movie. And that was a great time. That was, you know, I, I really think one of the, the first times we had somebody, you know, big, somebody for real, somebody making movies and shaking out there in the world on this program. And, of course, this was back in the live days, so things were much more relaxed when it came to being able to do something like that. But it was a real joy having Fred on the show and being able to talk about the movie. And at that point, I don't even think I'd be, I'd seen Selatercica so <laughs> that, that was a little bit difficult on my end, but, uh, you know, that's a different story for another day or a Death by DVD classic release. So let's go back and let's start at the very, very beginning, August Underground. These are the movies that I think, the, the trilogy itself, are the most accessible when it comes to Fred Vogel. I think these are probably the most booted movies that, you know, people can find them all over. And at conventions, you can find them online, though preferably you should get them from fred and and Tag. though i know it is increasingly difficult to find Tag blu-rays these days we'll throw this out there multiple times throughout the show but the movie that we're going to be discussing you can actually get and purchase from the final interview movie.com all one word the final interview and i do believe it is the only way that you can see this movie to get yourself a copy of it the august underground series is essentially fake snuff I mean, if you really look at all three of them, there is a story, there are characters, there are names to these people, and you can follow through with what's happening. But, you know, the first film, for all intents and purposes, was an effects reel, and a good way for it to be valued and seen by people is the way that Fred released it. And the shock value behind that, I think, was really unexpected and ended up catapulting him into a different direction that, and I could be completely wrong here, that he might have not really considered before. And it it really, really pushed things. It really worked. I mean, at this point in time in 2021, I think just about everybody knows uh, the name August Underground, at least some people. And it's kind of it's become something like Cannibal Holocaust, that people hear that title and they just cringe like, oh, I've heard about that movie, a Serbian film, things in that uh, not I wouldn't say all in the same genre, because I think August Underground, Cannibal Holocaust and a Serbian film all really have different directives. But in horror, in, in, this, in this underground genre of horror and extreme horror, everybody knows August Underground. Whether you like it or not, or you're one of the people that have just heard about this or heard Fred's name and you go, ugh, I don't know if I can sit through that. Because as always, uh, uh, with my comparison to Cannibal Holocaust things totally get blown out of proportion and I mean god there's no point in recanting rumors on on the August Underground series but everyone knows a different one they used real people that guy's really fucking his sister they're all dope addicts everyone's high and maybe some medicinal marijuana might have been involved a couple light beers here and there but this wasn't the (laughs) that wasn't the reasoning for all this coming forward and becoming such a, a momentous thing and that's just people's loud mouths and rumors and I think people are uncomfortable in general not having answers to things. And when you look at the August Underground series, there are more questions than there are answers. But what's incredibly unique about all of it is just the devastating amount of violence, the in-your-face amount of grotesque gore and this isn't some sci-fi channel bullshit. You know, this this is real gore. I mean it's real gore. It's not real gore, but it's real gore. You know, like it's fucking awesome. It it looks fantastic. And that's Jeremy Cruz and Fred Vogel. This kind of helped establish their place, especially in the early 2000s. The horror scene was, for one, pretty much dead. And two, nothing like this was really happening. These guys are out there invoking, you know, the, the, the ferocious nature of something like uh, Last House on Dead End Street. These guys are bringing back uh, film terrorism, pretty much. And I mean that in a a very great way. Whenever I talk about film anarchy or film terrorism, I certainly mean it in the highest regards because it's fucking the establishment. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, established films, but when you want to talk about something like that, people never have room for horror, especially something that might be outside of a linear aspect of a movie. You know, something like August Underground is truly uh, anarchy. And the way it was captured, the way all three of them are captured, it's really a heartbreaking story because you've got Fred Vogel as this lead character through all of them. And, uh, you know, spending a lot of time here on August Underground. I thought I said that this was going to be brief. But hey, you know, at least we have now affirmed that sometime in the future I'll be able to do an August Underground show because it seems like I have some things to say about it. Neat. Got gonna write that down real quick. You know, hey, content, content, content. So mid-2000s, Fred's on tour with necrophagia, they shot some videos. Fred and Killjoy were very, very close friends and worked together for quite some time. I think a lot of my admiration for Fred Vogel comes from Killjoy and conversations and him talking about working with him and talking about being in Europe and just a passion. You know, sometimes when you hear somebody talk about somebody very passionately, it kind of gives you a different insight to them. And I was referencing earlier, sometimes people hear the name Totag or they hear Fred Vogel and they kind of cringe. A lot of that, I think, has to do with uh, just imagery. People that have seen the movie are going to assume that Fred is kind of like this in real life, that everybody, you know, not just Fred, Killjoy... Krusty Wiles, Michael Maggot. And this makes me want to touch upon something that I had brought up a couple weeks ago when I was doing Necromanic. That just because certain things appear in the film or just because filmmakers use certain tactics or they have certain imagery, that doesn't mean they're into it. It doesn't mean that their life is fixated on this certain imagery or that these guys are really jerking off with livers that they've just freshly cut out of somebody. You gotta know that there's a fucking uh, certain amount of Acting involved in situations like this, but uh, I don't know it it gets harder and harder every day I'm telling you man things that used to surprise me just I just shrug and roll my eyes at now because what do you do? Is anything surprising? (laughs) People are um, Crazy, but that's not the point after that, in 2006, he made a film called Redson Tower. And all of these things are focused and centralized around Pittsburgh. Fred really didn't just make it his home, he made it his base of operations for all of his films. So the Redson Tower itself, in its film universe, is, is in Pittsburgh, is a part of Pittsburgh. It's the horror story based around it. You know, like scary stories to tell in the dark, Pittsburgh style. But it is a very graphic, violent film. You've got the third and final, August Underground, August Underground's Penance. Then 2009, Murder Collection Volume 1, I like the Murder Collection series. You've got kind of a Faces of Death knockoff thing here. There's a a backstory to the whole thing, but you've got pretty much a lot of short films that were done by Totag and Fred Vogel of very violent situations. And around the same time period, you've got Maskhead, which was co-directed by Fred Vogel. Something unique about Maskhead and Murder Collection Volume 1 both is these are the first times that we get to see Damian Maruskak work with Fred Vogel this fella is the star or one of the stars of the movie we're going to be talking about in just a little while some awful things happen to him in maskhead you know what something bad happens to him every time he's in a fred vogel movie we're going to talk a lot more about him in a little while then we've got sella starring the fabulous camille keaton 2010 marked the last feature from fred vogel and totag and let us get into the now with the final interview See I don't think that was that bad, I don't think that was, was too long, and I know I didn't really go into detail with anything, but what I at least want to do is if you're not familiar with Fred's work, now you've got something to kinda of hold on to here, and I highly doubt if you are familiar with Fred's work that I said anything that you, you didn't know. Now, before we begin this, our regular audience will know. This is a full exposure sort of thing. I'm going to discuss the entirety of the movie. So that means there will be spoilers. And I can't promise you when there will be spoilers. There's a couple places that I'll shout it out. But, you know, some things that I'm discussing, I might get ahead of myself. I can potentially really ruin watching this movie and this experience for you. So please heed my warning. If you've not seen the final interview and you would like to see it for yourself, if you would like to see it on your own, save this episode, go listen to another one, maybe buy a t-shirt or something like that, and then come back and check it out once you've been able to see this film. If you're willing to move forward, you just want to hear it, that's cool and fine. If you've seen the movie, hey, awesome, this is going to be my opinion. You might not agree with everything, but we're going to run through the movie and what happened. So that means I'm going to talk about the beginning, middle, and the end, the conclusion. So big spoilers. Big, 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 big spoilers. I'm just throwing it out there right now before we even get into the beginning of this movie, okay? Look at me, nice guy Hank. I'm fucking letting you guys know. There's so much to talk about when it comes to Fred Vogel as an artist that, you know, just trying to cram it all together in a few minutes doesn't do a lot of justice to things. But regardless, I hope you could, you know, at least get a glimpse of this guy, uh, you know, a picture of this guy. His work has become... I think, more renowned and known than his name. And unfortunately, because of that, most people already have an opinion based on him because of, you know, work that he did in the early 2000s stuff that came out in 2004. And they aren't willing to go on a ride with him. They aren't willing to look at how his career has changed, how things have moved forward. And one of the reasons I wanted to discuss uh, Fred Vogel's career is because throughout this, I want to point out some changes. I want to point out some growth, and I, I want to... Just examine the whole fucking thing with you guys. We're, we're <sighs> wasting time. So, all right, yeah, enough. We've covered the bases sufficiently. Or uh, a base or something. We covered something. So, the final interview. 2018, 2020. Look, it's recent. Just bear with me. This is a story about an old school news guy, a veteran newscaster who is waning in views. His success is beginning to fade. He gets this gig to interview a serial killer, the night. That he is to be executed. It sounds kind of quaint and completely different from everything else that I had just discussed. I mean, I used the words fake snuff when it came to August Underground. And and essentially when you're watching the movie, that's even what you're supposed to be thinking, that it's a snuff tape. Totag got in trouble because people, you know, reported it. This is a real thing. I found a snuff tape. I found a tape of people getting murdered. And it was shot on digital. It was made to look like gritty old VHS. It was rendered down to that. And that's just a testament to how believable and how amazing the effects that come from Jeremy Cruz and Fred Vogel are. I mean, I don't know the entire story anymore, so I can't do it verbatim, but they got arrested at the Canadian border trying to go to a film festival with a bunch of the VHS tapes and prompts and Totag tag related stuff in the car. And then, you know, Canadian authorities are like, oh, fucking hell, eh? What's going on here? There's a lot of legacy. Bear with me, because you guys know I get off subject all the time. But we're going to try and get tight here. We're going to try and really get fucking firm. I think the story is what attracted me initially to this, because I heard what it was about, I finally got to see the trailer, and that really was my first reaction. You know, wow, this, this isn't like anything I'd seen before. And at this point, I'd seen everything that Totag had released. I'd seen Selatercica. I'd seen all the August Underground. I had, you know, I had allowed myself to be assaulted with the utter brutality of, you know, the entirety of their career. And for the most part, you know, I've not really had any vocal complaints. It's never been one of those situations where it's like, I really, I, I strongly don't like this movie. I have no hate for it. I have no disdain for it. I've always found the work that comes from them genuinely interesting. So this was kind of like, you know, a capitalization of that, of, all right, well, this sounds like something really different. I want to get in on this. And even when I saw it for the first time, I really don't... I I don't know what I was expecting. You know, I really... I guess I had a lot of expectance that there was going to be a great deal of graphic violence, that there was... your, your senses were going to be truly assaulted with a lot of morbid and violent stuff and practical effects. And on the contrary, man, it's completely different than that. This is a dialogue-driven thriller. I mean, you can call it a horror movie, but if anything, I think it's really a psychological thriller. Or a psychotic thriller, you could even call it that. I think it's a monster movie, but I'll explain why I think that later on. This film marks something very different for Fred Vogel. This is not a Totec Pictures. This is his first SAG movie. This is a, you know, for all intents and purposes, a a pretty major big production. There's multiple sets, including two prisons. Uh, One of them, SCI Pittsburgh, which is also called The Wall, and those were just some exterior shots, and then the other one's a prison in Greensburg. I believe Westmoreland County Prison. Our cast has some familiar faces. I already mentioned Damian Maruskak. We've got Diane Franklin. You know, Princess Joanna from Bill and Ted. She's in Better Off Dead, Amityville 2. The Possession. Then we've got an incredibly unique character actor named Granger Hines. You may have seen him before in the Coen Brothers' The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, played Mr. Arthur. Or in Spielberg's Lincoln, he plays Gideon Wells. And the insatiable Art Ettinger. Everybody loves Art Ettinger. There's always room for Art Ettinger. He's got a cool appearance in this movie. It's a blinker and you miss sort of thing, but. If you know Art Ettinger, you won't miss it. A couple other toe-tag regulars. Uh, a lot of people that have been involved pretty much with Fred and, and, and his work uh, for the last 10 years or so. Something that seems to be a really neat sentiment when it comes to Fred Vogel is when people work for him, they seem to come back. They they liked working with him. They they like his message. They like... uh who he is and that just goes back to something i was talking about earlier as to where people have this idea they hear the name they hear toe tag and they shudder because they think of you know what they've been told or if they've seen the movie things that might offense them things that might violate their senses but fred vogel's a really peaceful dude he's really into positivity he's got that pma baby you know he he really has that bad brains mentality it's all about that positive mental attitude you don't hear uh, positivity fucking at all I mean, uh, even with the bad, people just generally don't want to have anything nice to say, so it's refreshing. But again, a lot of the time, most people don't want to take that time to get to know somebody or to get to know their work. But that's what we're here for, right? Helping you cross that bridge, helping you get to know the artist and the art a little bit better. The movie begins in a lonely way, a yellow cab gliding down the street. And we quickly are introduced to our lead character, Oliver Ross, played by Granger Hines. In the introduction, we establish right off the bat that our lead, Oliver, is an insufferable asshole. And we have this really beautiful shot of a vintage 50s, 60s-era yellow cab driving down a moonlit street. They pass under a train trestle, and it's it's really a perfect shot. There's a train coming at the same time, and you've got that haunting kind of hollow sound of it moving forward, and it's little choo-choo calling out into the night. And this really, really cool jazz soundtrack. And it's got this, like... I don't want to say giallo, but definitely an Italian 80s kind of inspired pacing and feeling to it. And uh, if you ever watched the show Oz, how there were just those kind of lonely, sad trumpet calls throughout episodes, it has a really reminiscent feeling of something like that, and it's terrific. So you've got this scene, this picture I'm painting for you of this awesome car, and it's, it's a really, really beautiful cab. It's vintage, it's in perfect shape. And you really are drawn to that right off in the movie again. If you have pre-existing ideas or notions of Fred Vogel when this movie starts, you're like, holy shit, this is a movie movie, this is one of them, one of them real movies, huh? Not that any film he has made prior to this isn't a real movie, but a lot of the time people will look at something shot on video or released on video and, eh, it's not a movie movie. But this starts off like a sprawling, massive production. And then immediately you arrive at the locations, a prison, this whole entire story takes place at a prison, and our lead character proceeds to just let us know this guy's a fucking dick this guy is a he's not even a dick he's a dildo he's so fake he's not even a real dick he's a fucking dildo he's rude to everyone and you know he's kind of got like a little bit of a donald trump attitude so oliver is a vicious asshole and a shrewd businessman but he is the host of his own television program investigative reportive sort of gig suffering from very poor ratings he's not at the height of his career Really, he's kind of a Geraldo Rivera mixed with, like, Morton Downey Jr. type guy. He just doesn't smoke anywhere near as much as Morton Downey Jr. But in this first scene, you know, even before he gets into the gig about to go on live television with this serial killer who will be later executed, he's drinking, he's popping pills. We don't really know what his pills are, but we pretty much get the brunt of our characters right here that in this sequence we have his producer who is actually the producer of the film. And once we arrive at the shooting location, we get to meet Diane Franklin, who is playing Rhonda Cox, the director of this program, and one of Oliver's four ex-wives. So as I said, the exterior shots of this prison is a place called The Wall. Then the interior shots, to some extent are in Greensburg, the Westmoreland County prison. And then some of the interior locations was actually a yellow cab garage. And another was a... It's not an O'Reilly's Auto Parts. but It was an auto parts store that they they painted up, they worked on it. I said that this movie was dialogue-driven, but it also is, is a character piece, and everything really is the emphasis and the emotions of the character. You've already got Oliver Ross bitching right off the bat, and then he's got to meet up with his director. They've got to go over the show. They've got to talk about what's happening. Him and Rhonda Cox get into an argument right off, and it is fantastic. And what we get to see is that Oliver is a very thick-headed person. He's very stubborn, and he doesn't want to be told what to do. And and he's experienced. He's done this before. This isn't his first rodeo. He's not going to be told by anybody. His director, ex-wife, it doesn't matter what to do. And all she's trying to tell him is, look, don't let this guy get under your skin. Don't let him intimidate you. Don't give him anything that he will be able to use against you. And Oliver just doesn't care. He's got more things on his mind, like getting his ratings up, and he didn't want to be here. That's something that we learn that follows us through the entire movie, is he did not want to be here. He had a bigger, better, bad guy that he wanted to work with, but because of his failing ratings, he just wasn't able to secure something like that. So now he's in Pittsburgh, and he's got to deal with something that he considers to be much lesser than what he originally wanted to do. He's pissed off, pretty much. He's not happy to be doing this. We move inside the prison, and we are introduced to the rest of our characters. We get to meet the warden, and this scene begins a focus on something that later on we'll talk about more. But it seemingly is a very important part of the movie, but may or may not actually have a meaning at the end of this film. But there's a long, drawn-out situation where... You can't obviously just walk into the prison with everything, so they got to be checked out. There's this explicit point and all this attention drawn to a mechanical silver pen that Oliver has that his father gave to him. It's got a lot of meaning to him. It's got a lot of personal emotion attached to it. It's something that he even says, I can't do my interview without that. You're going to have to break your rules and let me take my pen in because there's no way in hell I'm going to be able to do this interview without having my pen. And he's not allowed to have it. I mean, it's a fucking prison. People will harden their own shit and sharpen it to stab somebody else. A lot of anger going on inside of Americans' penitentiaries. Can't take shit like that inside. Anything and everything can be turned into a violent weapon. He manages to convince the warden to allow him to take this inside. And a lot of focus is put on this, a a, a lot. So at this point, you're kind of like, all right, this has got to be kind of like when a gun is shown in a movie. They're going to use it. It's going to be used. Or like the oranges in The Godfather. Someone's going to die. We've got this pen, and we're going into a prison, and he's going to meet a serial killer. So what's going to happen with the pen? We'll get there. We'll get there. Literally everything is is dialogue at this point, but it's swift dialogue for the most part. Natural. And it's written well, and it's delivered well. Uh, The Warden's a little bit stiff, but with Granger on screen, you don't really notice it. This guy himself is an excellent actor, but you have a really excellent character on top of that. So when you're able to mesh those two things and the puzzle pieces come together, I mean, that's perfection. And, you know, I neglected to mention this. I was talking about Maskhead earlier, and I said that Fred Vogel co-directed that. He co-directed it with somebody named Rebecca Swan, who also wrote it. You may know that name from Masters of Horror, John Carpenter's Cigarette Burns. Rebecca wrote that. Rebecca also is the writer for this, based on characters by Fred Vogel. So please pardon me for neglecting to bring that up at the beginning of the show. we got to give just as much credit to the writer as anybody else here. I mean, that's just poor managing skills on my part. So, my apologies. Oliver's personality is is really interesting. He has n- no charm, none whatsoever. It's all attitude, and it's clearly bravado to hide something dark and slimy that dwells deep inside. His crew just seem to kind of deal with him and tolerate him instead of seeing him as a peer or a leader or a boss. When he finally gets to the location where they're going to be shooting at, he immediately opens the door and yells at everyone, you're all fired. And no one really takes it as like, oh, Oliver! You're so funny! <laughs> they all just kind of look at him and groan, and it's like, ugh, this fucking guy again. We get a brief look in the scene of his crew featuring Shelby Vogel, who is also AD makeup, um, a great deal on this film. I think one of the major backbones of this movie is definitely Shelby Vogel. His producer, who we've already been introduced to, cameraman, a handful of people. Some guards, mostly nameless, faceless people that he will berate or eventually look to for some sort of approval throughout this experience. We have some really, really articulate shots here as we get introduced to the big, bad subject of this film. But you've got this really pretty shot that helps expose the prison. And you get to see the inmates inside their cells as this shot slowly crawls closer and closer and closer to the cell of Darius Tidman. Damian Maruskak is playing our mysterious murderer who himself is on the verge of death his execution taking place just a little while after this final live interview a real goodbye exit omnis, as they say in the stage all the prison shots are, are really really beautiful I think there's something isolating about them and there's something terrifying of this this slow pacing and the scanning throughout the prison everything is very empty and everything is very sterile And you really aren't introduced to a great deal of people. You get to see some inmates, but it's not like there's any interaction or there's any scenes. It's not like penitentiary, you know, not a bunch of people having a fucking boxing match. It's very hollow. But there's something very beautiful about that, and I think it's something that needs to be taken with this movie is a very lonely, hollow feeling that even from the introduction of our character Oliver Ross, I think it's evident that he is a hollow, lonely man. Why else would he be so aggressive? We're introduced in that first scene to him chugging alcohol from a flask, Why else before you had to go to work would you be doing something like that unless you were hollow? Hiding something. Or trying to fill, you know, the void of being hollow and hiding something. So where we're at now, things are being prepared to be set up. Time is of the essence. This man does have an execution that he has to attend. So this interview has got to get on the road. Some scenes were deleted here of Oliver getting really impatient with how long it was taking the guards to bring Tidman to the interview, and I think that's unfortunate. And I completely understand sometimes things look great on paper, and you've got to trim the fat, and you've got to cut some stuff out for runtime. But I just kind of like the idea of us, the audience, being further exposed to how... Just awful this guy is repeatedly, just over and over and over again as a reminder like he's insufferable. This guy's just really a douchebag. But at this point, we're we're just seeing that he's a condescending, abrasive piece of shit. I mean, it, there's a little bit of evidence that he's a misogynist and he's just an all-around unbearable person, but it's not that explosive yet. I just personally, um, I don't know, I I like really pushing it. And and to me, making this guy more insufferable would have been my aim in, in a situation like this. I feel like the idea of this character is nails grating against a chalkboard. But I don't quite feel it yet. Yet. But later, these things that I'm mentioning are definitely covered. And it's not like I'm complaining. You know, as a viewer, as somebody watching this, going through this with you, the audience, reviewing this... Personally, I would have just liked another touch, another nod to just affirm how big of a dick this guy is. But it causes no harm for the overall film. It's not like it dappers the effect or there's something wrong with it or that it cuts too fast or it needed this. Finally, Darius is brought to the interview room and he's chained up. He's in his death road jumpsuit. His face is covered in scars. He's deranged looking. And at first, Oliver plays the nice guy. When Tidman is brought in, he keeps emphasizing that, look, this is just a show. You know, things might get a little hectic. I might have an attitude. I might get a little wild with you, but, you know, nothing personal. This is just a show. We're working together. You know, it's for the ratings. You know how it is. And he tries to, like, humanize him. He tries to make him feel like he's going to be his pal. You know, this is all bullshit anyhow. I can't stand how they're doing things like this. They're, they're just trying to make money off of your name. All the while, he's got his ex-wife and director, Rhonda, in his ear. She's monitoring from a news van and is just yelling, this is bullshit. You, you you, do not agree with him. You don't feel any sympathy for him. You are pathetic. What you're doing is pathetic. While he grins and tells her to go fuck herself and has all sorts of snide and awful things that he, you know, just not to her, to his staff, to absolutely everyone. He's incredibly rude. He's callous and he just doesn't care. He's an awful person. He's an ugly man and just the idea of this character, he makes you want to grimace. He's like a tacky, cheap, used car salesman. It's just uh, even beyond that. And really, though, that is a good idea of of the type of person he is. He is just some tacky, cheap, awful used car salesman. That's all he's trying to do is is steal people's stories and and resell them with his own brand of garbage and sleaze. A real Morton Downey Jr. type. I liked that one. Yeah, that's that's pretty apt. Really, without the smoking, he's a lot like the mouth.
0: Sit down, you fat sli- bitch! Listen, you sit down! I'd love you to try to beat me, honey. I'd show you how to kick the living out of abroad. Yes. And don't That's you and don't you ever claim you do this in the name of God. Because he is not a slut, you are. I know a guy. I know a senator in the United States today. Who she probably <laughs> know? I know who likes to who likes to get down on his hands and knees like this, have ostrich feathers put in his rear end, a collar put on, and the dominatrix pet him. And say, nice bird, huh? That's a I mean, sick son of a s- bitch. That's a sick guy. And that's, that's a guy. Kind of that's a guy who's making the laws that, we want that out make of this our society possible. with the woman he does it with. Let's come because back, all right? Let's come back in just a second. and Continue this. So.
1: But Darius uses this time to begin the interview. The cameras haven't even begun to roll, but Darius is figuring out ways immediately how to get under Oliver's skin. And it's very casual. He starts asking him if he was married, he asks him if he has children, and all of these responses that you get from Oliver are grotesque. He talks about his four ex-wives, including the one that's listening in, as if they're dogs. He doesn't even really have anything nice to say about his children. He has nothing nice to say. At all, apparently. I mean, every single thing that comes out of this man's mouth is just negative. Pure negativity. All the while attempting to have some appearance of charm, as if he's really, you know, some big dick Rick motherfucker. And everyone around him seems to just have this bored look on their face, that they've seen his song and dance, they've seen his gimmick, they understand what he's doing, and all of them just want this to be over with. But not so much... Darius, Darius is watching, Darius is learning, Darius knows that his time may be running out, but there's always room to have a little bit more fun before the lights go off, and ain't that the fucking truth, there's always a little bit of time to have some fun before it's too late. So Tidman's brought in, he explains all of his methods, and you know, don't get offended, we're gonna be pals, and everything's okay, we're just playing a game here, buddy. And Darius is just kinda dead-eyed, I mean, it's, it's really, he's got this, like, great white shark look in his face, a dolls eyes they got black eyes dolls eyes staring up at you and they turn all white when they bite you yeah that's an awful Robert Shaw I apologize I won't do impersonations anymore on this episode
0: nothing about a shark he's got lifeless eyes black eyes like a doll's eyes when he comes at you doesn't seem to be living until he bites you and those black eyes roll over white, and then,
1: Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. But you can see right here, like, like right here in the sequence, this is why Fred uses Damien. This is why Fred has used him in multiple films because he's so fucking good. Just, just the 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 look in the guy's eyes, just absolute terror, absolute. Uh, it, it, you you have a convincing. I'm stuttering all over the place. This dude looks like he has seen something. This dude has that look that soldiers get in their eyes when they've seen incredible amounts of combat, when people have experienced incredibly traumatic incidents. This guy has that dead, vacant stare. This guy looks like he has seen death. This guy looks like he's not only seen it, but he's experienced it, he's lived with it, he's made love to it, he knows death intimately, and it's frightening. It's, it's just terrifying and you look at Damien and you, you see him in other films. Let's talk about Seatersica for a minute. He plays uh, an Iraq war veteran coming back home and he's disabled. He can no longer walk. His whole performance there is is very, very stoic. In this role, it's very, very similar. He's got these wonderful deliveries, but he's able to take you know a very similar character and to turn it into something so drastically beautifully different that it's once he's introduced. I mean, before this, you've just got Granger and this guy's stealing every scene. You can't you're not even really paying attention to other people. I think you end up watching Granger more than you even are paying attention to Diane Franklin. Then Damien comes on scene and it's like, wow, why is this guy not more stuff? Why is he not out there? I mean, one hell of a character actor. He can really develop and take over a role and you are now you're torn between the two. You don't even know who to look at or who to start following or what to do because both of these performances that you're getting right in front of you are are really strong. This performance that Damien is giving Darius Tidman is a bit different from the usual Charles Manson-type killer we so often are exposed to in horror and thriller movies. There are elements, but the character is unique itself in story and performance. So, you know, Manson isn't so much a taste that's left in your mouth as it's as it's more of an influence of many killers. I mean, I assume just it's more than one person that that has you know accumulated to kind of come up with what this character is but Damien's handling of the role almost makes you believe that Tidman was real I mean Granger really is a powerhouse and the star of the story but Damien proves to be an equal and a, a wonderful wonderful mix of terror and humor and and just absolute excellent timing and delivery that is something to be said of this character that it's not the usual doom and gloom when it comes to a serial killer. Uh it it's not like you know, it's not like the Robert Downey Jr. Woody Harrelson interview. It's it's not like this crazy psychotic back and forth. It's not like the Geraldo Rivera Manson interviews that you've got a lot of timed humor, you've got a lot of synchronicity with uh Damien's acting. You've just got a lot of motions that end up being very comedic. A lot of the way that Damien handled this character, how he looks at the camera, how he constantly manages to have one inch more than Oliver has. We'll get more into that in just a moment. Not that there was a problem with this beforehand, but at this point in the film, the pacing becomes just absolutely exquisite. And I'd like to note here, after the argument with Oliver at the beginning of the film, Rhonda retires to a news van where for the rest of the movie she resides. So... All the shots, everything with Diane Franklin, if, are from inside of the fan, and she's speaking to Oliver almost entirely through a headpiece. So when I mention she's screaming and she's yelling at him, it's only in his ear. He's the one hearing it. So, again, you have this theme of isolation that I think is really relevant throughout the movie. All of the characters are isolated. In his own life, Darius is isolated on death row. Obviously, Oliver is isolated and separated from everyone because he just doesn't know how to deal with people. He's a fucking abrasive, horrible dick, and despite thinking everyone respects him, no one really does. They might give him the appearance of respect just so they don't have to deal with him being an abrasive, abusive asshole. Diane Franklin obviously has been divorced and is struggling to get this show that she's directing for this incredible douchebag to have any form of success. Everyone's isolated. Everyone's very, very alone. I mean, the entire performance from Diane Franklin is completely isolated. So, I mean, really, it's just not a note. It's something that is a theme throughout this whole thing. So as we begin the interview, the final interview for one of these men... Oliver has an ex-wife in his ear, a murderer right in front of him, and America is watching. If he fucks up, it'll be his final interview, as well as Darius. One dead career, and one dead man. Oliver seems like almost a normal person here sitting across the table from a deviant monster, a murderer, someone that has taken the life of numerous people. I think we're told 20, that he killed 20 people. But there is much, 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 much more than meets the eye. Who really is the monster. Alright, so again, we're gonna take a quick second to tell you about some spoilers. Because they're coming up. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. We gotta come up with, like, a Karma Chameleon song. Spoiler, 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 spoiler. They come and go. They come and go. Spoiler, 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 spoiler. Okay, yeah. So, spoiler, chameleon. Fucking spoilers are coming up. I I just stress this, because I really want you to enjoy this movie. And if you've not seen it, please, just take into consideration that this really could fuck up. Your first time watching this movie. And it's... (sighs) Isn't it fun sometimes to just see something new? Isn't it fun to just experience something and have your own thoughts? And I, you know, not trying to dissuade people from listening to the show, <laughs> which I seem to do all the time. Don't listen to this if, but I care about your experience. I care about the fucking art <laughs> more than anything. Not that I don't care about all of you out there in Radio Land, And, and I, I, I do. I, we have some incredible people that listen to this program. And I, I really, I value all of you. All of you are, are wonderful people. I get out of bed every day because of you people. The surprise element in film in general is a a really unique piece of art that only really works once. If it's ruined for you or you know what's going to happen, sometimes it's just nowhere near as effective. So I've taken this moment to just once more again stress, I appreciate you listening to the episode, but if you've not seen this film, you might want to exit now. Hey, maybe. You've already gotten a taste of things, and you want to see more, and you can go to the thefinalinterviewmovie.com and get yourself a copy, and then listen to the show afterward. But, abandon hope, all ye who enter. We're moving forward, and there will be spoilers. So now we get something really cool here, and one of my favorite things about this movie. The movie develops two looks. You've got cinematic, and then you've got television. The interview is shown to us as the audience, just like you would see it on television, especially like you'd see it on television in the 80s. But the screen size changes. When we're presented what's happening with Oliver and Darius on screen, we get it in this really grainy, shortened little view, so you... you are forced to almost be further isolated by switching back and forth between these two realities. That You've got this television reality, and then you've got these two people sitting in the room together. And I think it really helps with the impact of this movie once the fire gets lit under its ass, which is about to happen. But, before we get into that, it's time to play a spicy round of Keith David. Or David Keith. In
0: 2000's Requiem for a Dream by Darren Aronofsky, whose dick does Jennifer Connelly suck for a heroin? Is it David Keith or Keith David? It's Keith David. Until the next ass to good round, goodbye and good luck. And now back to the my DVD.
1: really sort of dreamlike and i think as an audience member you're you're able to be transported back and forth between these two realities of what's happening and then what's being seen on screen and you know this is a live interview so thousands and thousands of people across america are watching this happen and why this is unique is that you are able to see the reality almost like a behind the scenes situation and then you're able to see what's happening on television as all these people are watching it. There's always two sides to every single story. You've got what you've seen, and then you've got what actually happened. And being able to combine both of those and allow the audience to see it is just absolutely terrific. And that itself is a hat off to the editor of this film, Jamie Lockhart. It's a beautiful job. Some places it's very quick, some places it's smooth, some places it's fast. You know, to me, it's got something that's almost reminiscent of a 1990s Tony Scott film. It's it's just got that excellent quality and pacing, but how beautifully it's cut and how these, these pieces are, are all puzzles, essentially. I mean, when you cut and you're making and editing a film, you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pieces. And just because there's a script and things were shot in a certain way, that doesn't mean all of these pieces are going to fit. So somebody incredibly skilled has to sit down and be able to visualize the director and writer's image and make that happen. And when you have somebody like Jamie Lockhart, you end up just with a really fucking beautiful job. And it's something to talk about. It's something to write home about. The editing and the soundtrack for this movie alone, you know, you got to kick it up to points. You can't just give this movie, oh, it's a a two-star rating. Nope, fuck you. Editing and soundtrack alone, we got to kick this thing up. So the interactions begin very, very subtle. Darius isn't really giving anything up. He's beyond stoic. And you begin to wonder here how much experience Oliver Ross has had with somebody like this. Has he ever dealt with a killer before? Has he ever done a special like this? Has he ever dealt with somebody's death in a format like this? I mean, this dude is about to die. He's going to be executed by the state one way or the other at the end of the night. Darius Tidman's dead. But you're given no real previous experience to what Oliver Ross has done. We just know the type of host he is. We, we get to see what type of show he does. We see how he treats his cast. We see how he treats his crew. We know what he wants for rating. So it's assumed that for the most part, this guy is kind of a sleaze merchant. That he's a late night TV kind of guy. You know, like when Connie Chung told that old woman that nobody else was listening and that the whole thing was between them and she was actually on live television. He's that kind of guy. You can't? I can't. Why don't you just whisper it to me, just between you and me?
0: She's a bitch. Real? That's the only thing he ever said about her. I think they had some meeting, you know.
1: well, hey, you know, he's a Connie Chung, Geraldo Rivera, Morton Downey Jr. That's three. That's three really good references to kind of paint a picture of, of, of how vicious and cutthroat this person is. Knowing my luck, I said something bad about Connie Chung and Maury Povic is going to show up on my front door with a fucking Glock now. Oliver's methods are kind of whack. He's constantly condescending, but he still manages to keep this image of a really friendly guy. But as Darius continues his somber and controlled act, Oliver begins to really push. And at this point, Darius has already interviewed him, he's already gotten the information he needs, he knows about his life, he knows what type of person he is, he's seen how he can handle himself, or how he doesn't handle himself, rather. Even as Darius gives Oliver what he wants, I mean, he's answering his questions, he's detailing his life, he's talking about his crimes, Oliver needs ratings, Oliver needs more than this, and it's all so soft, it's also, oh, well... You know, I was abused and these bad things happened to me And my It's not what he wanted. He wants something vicious. He wants something that's really going to wow the people. It's going to make the people go, wow, look at Oliver Ross. I can't believe that guy got in there with such a psychotic and he got all this information out of him. Isn't it amazing? And nothing like that is happening. So at this point, Oliver begins to do what he knows how to do best. And that is become an even bigger and meaner, brutish, asshole. A big, attacking, brutish asshole. Now, this film is unlike Fred's other films. The violence isn't presented on screen here. Damien tells us about all of his abuse growing up and where his violence began, and he paints us this awful picture that's delivered through the actor's performance instead of the usual bouquet of insane special effects and gore. But the effect itself is incredibly surreal. The way that this was handled, the way that Damien is able to convey all of these things to you by just sitting there and telling you. It's kind of funny. I I mentioned in all Fred Vogel films, something bad ends up happening to Damien, but for the most part, he seems to not be able to move in a lot of Totec films. You've got Stella who's bound to a wheelchair, and in this film, he can't get out of his chair. He's chained to it. And he has to do all of this acting, all of this emoting while stuck in one place. And sometimes it it really, it it borders Granger Hines. I mean, you you know this guy is, is a professional, Granger Hines. He's been in a lot of real movies. He's done a lot of work throughout his life. And then you're watching Damien and it's like, man, why isn't this guy in more stuff? Why don't we see him more often? Where is he? What's he doing? Get out there, man, because it's fucking phenomenal. I personally, when when I watch this film, that's what I'm drawn to. That's what I'm watching. He's just got this Sneaky, mysterious demeanor that I can't take my eyes off of. Damien is so convincing that the morbid, awful things that are coming out of his mouth end up stinging like a horde of hornets. But this just isn't the story that Oliver or his director want. Sympathy for the devil? No way. It's all very real here. Everything is overwhelmingly real here. There is no soundtrack. There is no backing music. That when we are watching the TV format, this grainy 1983-looking TV format of the interview, it's them. They are the air, the emotion. They are the soundtrack. They are absolutely everything. And it's not something you notice at first. You're so enchanted and encaptured by these two people bouncing back and forth off of each other that you don't notice that there's no soundtrack pumping through the scene. It's literally... The actor's spirit that's pumping the scene. At this point, almost everything we see is locked between Oliver and Darius, and then we've got these flashes of Diane Franklin's Rhonda in the van, panicking more and more as Oliver loses it progressively. Tough guy, Oliver surfaces suddenly. This righteous figure, shaming Darius, calling him pathetic, trying to trying to invoke some wild and crazed rant, anything. But Darius always remains in control. He's always cool. He's jocular. He gives him a show. He's got jokes. He's got a bit of an attitude himself, but he constantly and always remains cool. He always manages to keep his control. We cut to a brief man-witch commercial.
0: Our tummy is quite a lumberjack. you are hungry as lumberjacks too. Right, Gramps? Hey, I'll make sandwiches. Yeah, a sandwich is a sandwich. But a manwich is more like a meal. And what's a manwich? A Sloppy Joe's made with your fresh ground beef plus Hunt's manwich sauce. Thick with tomatoes, onions, peppers. Makes more of a meal. Oh, cool. yeah, yeah. Like I said, a sandwich is a sandwich. But a manwich is a meal. Yeah, <laughs> especially for us hungry lumberjacks.
1: And then we return to the interview. While on a commercial break, Oliver appears fatigued. He, he doesn't look good at all. He looks like this is exasperating him. He looks like he's losing a battle. And then something really interesting happens. Oliver gets a phone call, which you've got to assume has got to be a pretty important phone call to go through in the middle of filming a live television interview with a bloodthirsty killer who's about to be executed. The caller is Oliver's current lover who is alone and needs him. We find out that she's pregnant, but his mind, Oliver's, is elsewhere, and he tells her that, you know, Gotta do something about this. Yeah, you gotta get rid of it. Get rid of it. And he gets directly back to his bravado with Tidman. Playing this game, he's, he's trying to show him that he's the cock of the walk, to use a weird term. You know, that he's got the biggest dick in this facility and there's nothing that Tidman can do about it that he's gonna sit there and eat shit. And continuously, he keeps... Every time that they even get to something moderately interesting darius and oliver he manages to try and use his ego and it just completely deflates the situation and what it gives and what it does is continuously give tidman the upper hand oliver is beginning to look a bit embarrassing what's interesting to note here is darius's reaction almost like a cat we don't know what he's thinking but we know it's something devious something devious at least is forming You know that wicked look a cat gets on its face right before it knocks a glass off a table after it's making direct eye contact with you? That's the expression that he has on his face. It's just this sneaky, sneaky, devious look. He is seeing as we are the nature of Oliver, a very, very ugly man. He only cares about one thing, and that's himself or his success of the success of himself, so it just goes back to the one thing. But this little show he put on for Damien is damning. He's again given him something else in his arsenal. Oliver assumes that he is in control of this interview, but he and we are about to learn otherwise. Oliver decides to attempt to at least go by the book here, bringing up Darius's family history, digging for some soft spot that might allow him to get under Darius's skin. Both of them bouncing off one another is extremely pleasurable to watch. The dialogue is very, very smooth and you fall into the reality of the film very, very quickly. You feel like this is all real, like this is a true story, like this is a a true tale. Darius gives it pretty forward. You know, you really are captured in between the four walls of the movie at this point that it's overwhelming. You lose track that you're watching a film. It, It is a sort of reality. And that just goes to the believability of the actors here and the directing. You really have to put all of those things into order and look at what happened. And you've got Fred Vogel his excellent choice of actors, and these people running off of each other on Vogel's direction, and a script with incredibly well-written dialogue, these things really are a puzzle, and it's you've got the absolute perfect pieces. Darius gives it pretty straightforward. He has a story, and he's telling it, but he's not falling victim to Oliver's aggression, much to Oliver's contempt. It's like tennis at this point, and Oliver is John McEnroe. It won't be long until he throws a tantrum. You
0: can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious! That ball was on the line. Chalk flew up. It was clearly in. How can you possibly call that out? Now he's walking over. Everyone knows it's in, in this whole stadium. And you call it out? Come on! This is absurd! I can't believe that How bad everyone is! You know that? You're a disgrace, and everyone here is a disgrace. They can't get a call to even this far outright. It's absolutely unacceptable. You're pathetic! You know that? You are the worst umpire that I've ever seen in my life.
1: You're never going to. As gonna the interview moves forward, we find out that the story of the South side Slasher isn't incredibly impressive. I mean, we're told that he kills 20 people and we don't get every single one of those murders outlined and as I said earlier, unlike Fred's other films, we don't see them. This violence is specifically told to us via Darius Tidman and through... Damien's just absolute powerhouse acting abilities, it all becomes very too real, very believable, very haunting. I don't think the effect behind what Darius Tidman did is what you're supposed to be feeling as an audience member. That yes, you should uh, be shocked. You should be wowed by, by what he did. You should be completely, abhorrently turned off as to the fact knowing that this man is such a vicious killer. But it just doesn't hit you. You're, you're still kind of reeling from the behavior and what you just saw with oliver ross how he handled that phone call how callous and and just cold and, and and almost sociopathic i mean he clearly doesn't care for anybody but himself that he could say something like that so hurtful just for this interview the fact that the killer in front of him was even kind of floored like all right wow but he isn't a cult leader darius he's not a cult leader He's not some Ted Bundy-style killer that might have a two, 300 body count. You know, it's not some Otis Tool, Henry Lee Lucas sort of guy. What's interesting here is that we learn about this darkness that uh, resides inside of Darius. All of this began after Darius was in a near-death experience, a car wreck when he was young that killed his parents and caused these horrific scars that are all over his face that have caused people to call him a monster for most of his life. Young Darius briefly died and then went into a coma after being resuscitated, and and in this moment he uh, feels that he experienced the void, we could call it, another realm, darkness, something outside of our comfort zone of reality heaven, hell, something beyond that, that he truly experienced and touched hands with something as horrifying but beautiful as death, and when he came back into the land of the living after returning from his coma, there was a touch of that left inside of him, something from that nether realm that came over and managed to stay with him, a touch of darkness that would haunt him. All of this, according to him at least. Oliver's tactics become much more attacking and rude. He doesn't believe a single word that's coming out of Darius' mouth, and at this point, you're kind of left asking, Who's more full of shit? You know, you've got this one guy talking about some form of darkness that has traveled over since death and is inside of him, and a demon is living inside of his head. And then you've got this hackneyed jerk that's just snarling and barking, putting on this big strongman show. A big show that further exposes to us what type of man Oliver is. The more we're shown of him, the worse it gets. He was an asshole at first glance, but, I mean, really, this, this guy's awful. He's, he's just not a good person at all. Darius seems to honestly have more emotion. He's telling us about brutality and death, all the while much calmer and remaining composed. Compared to the angst of Oliver and all of his anger, Damien truly seems to have a a stronger grasp on reality than this television host, than this uh, appearingly free man. The murderer really is conducting the interview. But this isn't a constant match. We have breaks between all of this. The broadcast goes to commercials, and this is where we get interaction between Oliver and Darius off-camera, Oliver attempting to return to his cool, I'm-a-nice-guy persona, and the ever-sneaky Darius prying more and more information from Oliver as well as Diane Franklin's Rhonda and the van angrily trying to control this shit show. Here, the pen finally comes back into play. During a commercial break, Darius asks if he can see it. Oliver has been playing with it the entire time between that and fiddling with his glasses. So now, attention for a little while comes back to this goddamn pen. Oliver offers it to him and then pulls it back quickly like a child taunting Darius. His his mask, you know, his mask of sanity, his illusion, the image that he puts on for everyone, it's starting to slip as the night grows harder, and all that booze he's been consuming on top of whatever his medication is, I mean, really, he's he's starting to lose grip. Really, no grip on anything. But to further rub salt into the wound, Oliver begins to insult someone that was really close to Darius. Tidman revealed during the interview someone that was like a brother to him, somebody that, somebody that kept him from acting out, somebody that he will always have a great deal of respect for. And using this as a weakness, another childish tactic... Oliver really begins to berate him. And this is finally something that gets Rhonda to stop yelling into his ear all the time to try harder. So, you know, we're on the right path. Well, we aren't. Oliver is. This and the fake-out antic is enough to change the cat-like demeanor of Darius to something much more dangerous. Something like a wolf. But unfortunately, Rhonda wants a rabbit dog. Darius is proving to be way too smart for that. The insults get to him, but Darius manages to keep control, as always. The break ends and we go directly back to the live interview. We start getting some meat to the story as Darius details some of his crimes, the effects of Oliver's insults, no longer visible. Darius believes that death isn't the end, and that his murders were more or less setting the victims free, free of the boundaries of this world for something bigger, something more divine, something more beautiful, something... Truly free, which Oliver believes to be absolute bullshit. Darius feels that releasing these people is cleansing and and, and godlike and an overwhelming amount of purity and power that resides in being able to take somebody and move them, taking them to another plane of existence. You know, he almost considers it like taking a shit ton of acid and seeing the face of God. But there's something much more permanent going on. Oliver thinks he is a monster. But you can see in Darius' face that he thinks the exact same thing of Oliver, so these two are almost sitting as equal in one another's eyes. They're both monsters. Oliver's tactics and methods become much more absurd, they become much more crash, much more brutal, and at this point he feels he needs a break. Much to the dismay of Rhonda. In an attempt to belittle Darius before he leaves the room, Oliver turns and says something to the effect of, I gotta take a break to get away from this piece of shit. And, you know, just a little while ago, we had him sitting down playing this nice guy, this coy character that this is just an act. You know, I'm, I'm just doing whatever I have to do for the ratings. And, and we're not live anymore. He's just being abusive. He's just being a nasty person. He's hoping at some attempt that he can do something that's going to fuck with Darius that's really gonna set him off. And if anything, this just amuses Tidman. It doesn't do anything to him, it doesn't affect him, it's not pushing his buttons. And we've already seen at the very beginning of this, before the interview starts, Darius gained control. He already got the information he needed. That phone call that just happened was further ammunition for him to really get under this fella's skin, and it's working. So. Tidman is pretty much amused by this, and Oliver storms out. Rhonda knows, though, this just isn't a ploy. This just isn't a way for him to get under Tidman's skin. He needs a drink. Oliver has to do something. It's his fuel. He can't finish this without having a drink, because that's all his ego comes from. That's all this guy is, is it's just asshole in a bottle. He has nothing outside of that. He's a very hollow, empty, bitter person. Uh, he's he's using something like this to come up with his whole persona. People might think he's clever or brash or brutal, but no, he's just a fucking drunk. That's where it's all coming from. God damn, he really is like Morton Downey Jr. So Oliver is coming off as a joke to us. It's coming off as a joke to Darius, his director slash ex-wife, his crew, pretty much every single person that comes in contact with him everyone but himself he seems to have a very high opinion of himself which hey i guess in these trying times that's important oh well yeah this is supposed to be in 1983 i said that at the very beginning of the show this is a period piece you've got to invoke a certain feeling and it's not just like it's the 80s <laughs> and that's the problem but that's how it is in most situations like i said it was the 80s and the prologue dumbass duh and you are in the 80s here. Now, is it as believable as the reality that Damien is bringing to Darius? No, but again, it's like, you know, I mentioned way earlier that some of the performances weren't always the best, but when somebody like Granger is on screen, you don't seem to notice stuff like that. When you have all of this, when you especially what's going on, where we're at in the story, when you have so much in your face and on top of these just mind-blowing performances... I mean, I'm really talking that up, and it's for a reason. I don't, I, I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to say something that could be taken wrong, but I, I feel that Damian really is the star of this show. Uh, Granger Hines is one hell of an actor, and his performance is, is amazing. Everything, I, I love absolutely everything. In fact, seeing a picture of him, I kind of just want to hate him because. He made Oliver Ross so believable that now I see this actor's face and it's like, ah, that's that fucking guy that interviewed uh, Darius Tidman. That's that. <laughs> you have that, and it's that's something really, really wonderful to uh, a tribute to Fred Vogel and his his style as a director that he's able to make these characters so believable. But Damien just man, I could talk about this guy for hours. He's just great. He 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 really is, and it it it's. His performance, I've seen him in other things. I've never met this guy. I don't know him in real life at all, but I've seen him in multiple films, and every single time, it, it's not him. He, he's able to really... He's an actor. He's a fucking actor's actor, and he's able to, like a chameleon, take on this appearance and give you such a believable and incredible performance that this, this movie, the last interview, if you can take anything major from it, it is just how goddamn good this dude Damien is. I mean... Let's get him out there. Let's see him in everything. I'd love to see... I mean, because his versatility knows no bounds, I feel. I'd love to see Damian Maruskak and much, much more. But hey, you know what? I'd like to see Fred Vogel do much, much more, so maybe we'll get uh, everything, you know? (laughs) Maybe I'll get what I want, and it'll be wonderful because it'll be more Damian. And more Fred. More movies like this. I I, and I don't mean that in an offensive manner, you know, because I dig August Underground. I dig them all to an extent. I'm not the biggest fan of the third one. And, but, you know, that's not the point here. It's seeing the progress and the change. And, you know, I discussed all these things at the beginning of the show. So as we go through this, if you are familiar with Fred Vogel, if you are familiar with Toe Tag, that you would be able to hear this and go, you know, wow that doesn't sound like, like what I'm familiar with. That doesn't sound like what I know. And it might be a diving board or a stepping stool for you to get further into this person's art. And this is the time to do it, because something like this, it's its really showing the versatility and the style and the power of Fred Vogel, that he's not a one-hit wonder, that he's not just going to do ultra-violent, horrible, offensive gore movies that are going to shock and bother your your great-grandma he's doing he's able to do it all he, he can really do everything and i think this is a solid portrayal of his 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 artistic his artistic nature his artistic credibility i guess that's better wording, his artistic credibility, because you get beaten down, you get boxed in, you get told that this is all you can do, this is all you're good for, that's all people are going to believe, and that's what you eventually are going to believe about yourself, and being able to step outside of those underground horror, the hardcore crowd, or, or whatever, being able to step outside of boundaries and and break the rules, and to do something like this, I think it's it's head-turning, I think it's really pivotal, and I think just as when Fred did something like the first August Underground film, it completely changed the direction of his career and his life, and this is something very similar to that, moving forward into another direction. Which, unfortunately, I don't know, you know, if the hardcore gore guys, if the underground guys, if you know the jerking off seven days a week to Serbian film fellas, if they're gonna be behind a movie like this. But you know what? Their loss. And and really, it is their loss. All right, so that was another little turn onto off subject road. Let's get back to the movie. I mean, it's not completely off subject entirely. I mean, this is a review after all. I gotta share some form of opinion, right? That that's helpful. Maybe no, I don't know. So Oliver has excused himself and sneaked off for a drink. That's not how you say it. Sneaked off for a drink. Snucked off. Sneaked it. No, snucked it. He snucked it off? Whew, God damn, I have the like lightest grasp on the English language. Gets harder every episode. So he goes away to have a drink. Snuck. He snuck off. That's how you say it, right? Yeah, it sounds right, right? Or is that a word I made up? Snuck? It doesn't sound like a word. And that's really what he had to do. I mean, uh, sure, you could take it as this ploy of insulting Darius to get something out of him. No, he just needed a drink. He's losing control. He's losing grasp of the situation. Every time he tries to powerhouse Darius with something, he always has a calculated response. He always has something cool or slightly humorous to say that ends up making Oliver look like a buffoon himself. Everything is backfiring, and this wasn't expected. Well, it wasn't expected by Oliver. The first encounter we have with Diane Franklin's Rhonda Cox is her explicitly saying, Look, don't let this guy get under your skin and don't let him intimidate you. And what does Darius do? He fucking intimidates him. First thing, too, like right off the bat, he starts grilling him and asking about his life and his children and his kids. He knows what he's doing, unfortunately. We can't say the same thing for Oliver Ross. So he slinks away to drink, and he encounters the warden. And, like, right off, the warden tells him, Ah, having a drink? I smelled it on you when you walked in. And it's because he's a sloppy fucking drunk. That's not the dialogue. But, you know, he tells him, I can smell it on you. And this is kind of a subtle hint to let us, the audience, know, this guy's not as composed as he... Showed us. When we are first introduced to him and we see him in those first scenes of the movie, he, he could be considered a little dapper. He's a professional. We know that much, and we know that he's the host of a TV show, so we're going to assume that he has some uh, prowess, that he knows what he's doing here, and he, he really doesn't. I made a, a notion earlier that What's his experience with something like this? What's his experience in this particular field? Probably none, because his manner of handling this is getting shit tanked. He's got to get fucked up to do it, because he doesn't know what else to do. But if you're not a drinker and you listen to this show, you may or may not know that alcohol lowers your inhibitions. So suddenly something that you are absolutely terrified over, five shots later, fuck it. I'll punch an alligator in the face. I don't give two shits nor a fuck. That's the situation that we're in right now his inhibitions are incredibly low and he's if anything getting much more agitated and and wants success He, he wants to treat this as almost a gladiatorial sort of thing that he wants to defeat Damien. But the important thing is just that subtlety of knowing the warden saying I could smell it on you when you walked in. He's a mess. He's a big fucking sloppy mess. He reeks of boozy, has no composure, and everyone can see it. Really all the warden wants is to have a drink and to talk to a big shot to feel like he's something, but he and Oliver discuss the execution of Darius Tidman as if he was a big turd that was about to be flushed away. Nothing more, nothing less than a piece of fecal matter. Literal and physical shit. No emotion no soul no anything and you know this isn't going to be some rant that goes on 20 minutes about the death penalty but I really think there is something that needs to be thought about and I think it's something that is a, a direction in this movie is the grisly and inhumane nature of of murdering a murderer for murder I mean that's genocide killing a killer for killing and you can kill so many killers for killing they it just becomes a killing machine. I mean, uh, try and tell me that that's not some odd form of mass genocide. Where is, it's not even punishment being served here. Ah, goddammit, I just said that this wasn't going to be a rant about the motherfucking death penalty. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. And what's funny about all this is the warden and Oliver talk about Darius the same way that he talks about killing people, the same way that he talks about his crimes, which seems to infuriate and, and just truly get under Oliver's skin that he can be so callous that he can think that he's setting people free that there's a philosophy behind this because these guys have a back and forth about Albert Camus absurdism and all that grand stuff but it truly appears that Oliver doesn't even really consider somebody like Darius to be a human or on his level or even worthy of being on his level the warden just wants to be included in something even to the extent that he offers Oliver a spot at Darius's execution That that's the real fun part. You get to see them wiggling and worrying and finally they're crying and the tough guy act is going to be broken down. You know, you really want to see somebody broken. And it's interesting because Oliver doesn't want to. You know, his comment really comes down to, I'd rather just shit out that turd and forget all about it. Move on. But I think that, I think it says something about the man. I think it says something about his backbone and who he is and what he thinks about all this situation, which is nothing. He he has no thought outside of his own success. Oliver Ross may be a sociopath. He tells the warden that he needs some time alone. You know, I gotta prepare. I gotta get my mind back into the right place before I get back in there. All this is just an elaborate excuse for him to take another few drinks from the flask and to Chew on whatever his pills are. But now it's time for the show to continue. Oliver is disheveled. He's drunk. And it's obvious. It's visible. Everyone can see it. Darius can see it. Rhonda knows just by listening to him. At this point, Diane Franklin's Rhonda has more dialogue yelling at him than I think she does in the entire film. And it's all very valuable stuff, you know, she's letting him know he's a fuck-up, that he's ruining this, that he's drunk, and that he can't do anything unless he's drunk, and thank god you're a functional alcoholic so you can manage to actually get through this, you asshole. I mean, she's really just giving him the what for. And this isn't the first time or the last time that it's happened. I mean, he constantly has to be chided, he constantly has to be roped back into line. And it's more than likely not just because he's drunk, but it's because he just can't do it. This is why his ratings are dropping. This is why his show's not successful. He's really not that great anymore. He could have been at one point. We don't know anything else about him. We're given what we're given. We're given a a character-driven, dialogue-driven story. This is all about emotion, and this is all about characters. This isn't about gore. This isn't about shock. This isn't about offending you. This is a character and dialogue-driven thing. And that's not easy to do. The pressure is on. Shoveling pills into his mouth, Oliver has got to get ready to go live. Darius just sits patiently. He's returned to his cat-like demeanor. A flare and a sense of predatory nature is there. Damien and Granger are are just absolutely on fire, and the the performances are tremendous. At this point, it's like an opera, and we're just reaching that absolute peak of of insanity, and that huge wave of music hits you, and the most triumphant, you know, like a Wagner opera, when you finally get to that huge huge amazing viking part and it's just you know and everything is just in your face we're bordering that level of energy the mask is absolutely off at this point too oliver doesn't care he washes his pills down with booze after pulling his flask out in front of everyone fuck it I'm in control. I am the big dick Rick. I mean, this is really what he's thinking at this point. And then the phone rings again. It's the same scared woman from before, voiced by Shelby Vogel, who is calling at the worst possible time, pleading for Oliver's help. The first time he talked to her, he just said, get rid of it. But now, straight up, he just tells her to kill it. Oh. He has no sympathy. He doesn't care. He, he tells her, just take a volume and shut the fuck up. Kill it. He doesn't care, not only about this life, but hers. He doesn't care about anything outside of what he's doing right now and what has to be done, which is the final interview. His crew, his director, Darius, all of them are an audience for this, all witness to the sad song and dance being put on by a miserable, failing man. But Darius is amused, and after a tantrum... I told you there was gonna be one. I told you there'd be a McEnroe tantrum. Where Oliver breaks the phone. They go live within seconds. I mean, and he gets mad. He, he's angry over all this. Not because he has to go through it, but because it's interrupted him. Because it's something that took away from his time. So he fucking throws the phone across the room. And they return in seconds to the live feed. Here we get more of the South Side Slasher story. Darius detailing more of his murders and the private philosophy attached to them. And of course the darkness that resides deep within him. This demon that he offers to be able to show Oliver Ross. He even discusses some of his feelings of remorse, to which an obviously drunk Oliver Ross aggressively combats. Pretty much anything Darius has to say, Oliver shoots down, despite wanting him to say more. There's a really, really beautiful sequence here where the two just stare at each other. They've been locked in combat for what seems like days and days and days and days, even though it's only been a short period of time. And they just glance at each other, Darius staring intensely with this vicious, shark-like gaze, something that Oliver can't meet. He quickly looks at him, and he looks away. He can't actually deal with it. He can't come face-to-face with what he's learning. And Through this story, it's obvious that he's dealing with things that are are hurting him. But some of this has come from the fact that Darius was able to grill him previous to the interview. He was able to extract information that he knew he could use against him and let it get under his skin. Oliver just thought he was too tough for it. He didn't think that he would be able to be taken over. He didn't think that he would be able to be breached. And he really, he truly has. You can see it on his face. He's struggling. He doesn't know what direction to go into next. He's not getting any form of reaction. Time is running out, and this is important. If time runs out, nothing good happens. And this is just another click. This is where somebody decided, you know what? I'm going to go watch Happy Days instead of the new Oliver Ross. It's not that important. And on this episode, Fonzie jumps the shark. And that is what Oliver's doing. Jumping the fucking shark. They both are truly disgusted with one another. Darius is disgusted with Oliver, and Oliver looks at him with contempt. Neither of them understand the actions of one another. But we are starting to see more and more and more that this vicious, this mad murderer, this man that has killed 20 people, Darius Tidman, he has more sensibility and humanity within the constraints of this chair that he's sitting in while being interviewed than... Oliver Ross has had in his entire existence. Four wives, five kids, and this one murderer is showing more compassion, or at least talking more compassionately, showing more emotion than this man who has lived so much and done so much. Oliver tries now to give everything. This is the bomb. This is his Nagasaki and Hiroshima. He has to defeat In his mind, the evil that is Darius. He's got to do this for the ratings. He's got to do this for himself. He's got to land some sort of blow that makes him look like some holier than thou. I have morals. I have standards. Look how more powerful I am than you. Look at all the things that I stand for that you don't. I'm for good and you are for evil. And he flexes this. He really, he tries to stab Darius with his words. He tries to defeat him. He tries to make his story, make his life look like everything he has just said uh, to be dog shit, to be just nothing, to be absolute waste that needs to be flushed away. And what does Darius do? What he's done the entire time. He just remains calm. He remains cool. He has the control. And it's something that Oliver knows. He, he knows that he's just grasping for it. It's like when you have a bigger brother that just holds something over your head, makes you jump for it over and over and over. Darius hasn't had to get out of the chair. He's chained to it, in fact. He can't do anything. His freedom is completely revoked and removed, but yet he has more freedom, and in his thoughts, and in his concepts, and in his philosophy, uh, exceeds Oliver Ross. He, He has so much more than him, even while in these constraints, and Oliver knows it, and he's afraid of it, and you can see it on his face. You can see it in his body. Which is a testament to Granger Hines. Oh, we're getting into we're about to get to a, a a whole thing here soon where Granger Hines motherfucking just I don't even know how to word it. Like this is one of the greatest performances I've seen in anything in and, and quite some time. I mean, last week we were talking about Astron 6 and I uh, you know I, I couldn't stop gushing about the void and how much I love that film. The editor as well. I talked about both of them very very highly. And you know those are massive budget, a couple million dollars movies, really, really big movies. They've got big actors. They've got big effects budgets. This is something really along those lines when i when I spoke how uh, when I spoke so highly of the void. Most of it came from the emotion and and the thought-provoking nature and the fact that it made me actually question myself and question my attitude. This film has done the exact same thing. Being able to see somebody like Oliver Ross, it's given me questions and raised even more questions, not about the film, but about my life and about my attitude itself. And that's something that has to be taken into a lot of consideration when it comes to art, when it comes to reviewing art, when it comes to discussing something like this. Did it make you feel something? It doesn't matter if it made you feel something bad or good. Did it make you feel something? Did it invoke an emotion? Did it make you think? Did it do anything to you? Because if it did, that's how you know it's art. That's how you know you've uh, uncovered something that truly speaks to you. And it might not speak to everyone. I might be just talking here, and, and people could be cringing. Ah, I watched that film, and I don't fucking see it. That's not my problem, because for one, you're listening to my show. But it's it's my opinion on the entirety of this. And when I look at Fred Vogel's other films, when I look at Maskhead, when I look at Sella Tersico, when I look at August Underground's Mortem, and then you put this on the table, I think what is, is just beautiful is it's a plateau. I mean, you can see the growth and the separation from his previous work and the admiration and love of horror and the genre. And there are so many things uh, that that dwell within this movie and the plot. And, you know, there's a lot of Alfred Hitchcock nods. There's a lot of nods. I mean, to me, I think this is kind of a... I'll talk about this at the end of the show, but I think this is almost like a, a John Cassavetes kind of thing. There's a lot. There's a lot of emotion and a lot of layers and a lot of unique things that are are applied that come to this as a specific art piece. And when you look at the previous work and you, you, know, you use that, well, he made this, this, and this, you're not allowing yourself to see what people are able to do and what people can do with growth and time and change and how art is a constant, moving, fluent thing that can never be captured in one essence. Art is forever. Art is always moving. Art is eternal. When you look at Fred's earlier work and then you look at this, it got to a point in his life where art was ready to move, where things were ready to explode, where he was ready to show us, the world, the viewers, the audience, the critics, the actors, everybody, the money, the producers, look what I can do. Look. Check it out. Take a second. Stop talking about August Underground, and look what I can do. And where we're at in the movie, and we're, we're at the end, we're getting right into the end here, I think you have just this triumphant display of somebody... At at the top of a mountain, yelling, look, look. And it's it's not, you know, an attention-seeking sort of thing. It's refreshing. It's beautiful, if anything, being able to see this is the future. This is somebody's capabilities. This is somebody proving to all of us they're just not a one-trick pony. It just doesn't have to be gore and violence. We've taken another trip down off-subject lane. Let's get back to the movie. I always say that like I get drastically off-subject, like I'm talking about Looney Tunes or some shit just way out of left field, and all of this has to do with Fred Vogel and Tag in the film and what we're discussing, so... Still, we're at the end. Let's get to it. We begin to learn further details to how awful the nature of Darius's murders were. The extreme nature is shocking, but whenever Darius is tasked to speak, he calmly discusses it, with little or no regard to the tenacity from Oliver. This is where things get a bit confusing, as Darius begins to discuss demons. And whether or not they are physical or just a concept, it's something that gets a little bit muddled at this point of the film. You know, he offers to show Oliver this demon, and he's talking about how there's a demon inside of him. And as well as something like the pen and that focal point on the pen, I'm just a little confused as to to what the whole point was here. On with the show. We're going to say it one more time. Spoilers. We're at the end here. So, you know, this is the the grand finale. From this point on, I'm going to discuss what happens at the end of this film. So this is your last chance to turn back and save this for another day if you'd like to keep that as a surprise. We get back to the show, and all this abuse and degradation that Oliver has been spitting out onto Darius finally is regurgitated, because Darius takes this time to expose all of Oliver's marital problems live on the air, and he explains everything. But Oliver is quick, though drunk, and despite being a hack, a bit of professionalism shows forward, and he's immediately able to turn to the camera and dissuade the audience and to say something equally snarky and rude about how Darius is a man preparing for death, just trying to grasp at straws to make somebody else look weaker but truly at this point i think all of america everyone watching everyone involved his crew his director Rhonda cox Everyone knows how weak he is and how pathetic this is, that he has become the embarrassment, and he truly has lost the upper hand. He's being one-upped by a guy who's going to be executed in an hour from now. Despite his attempt at professionalism to dissuade the situation, the damage is already done and the words have already been said. It's already out on the broadcast. Oliver is attempting to gain control, or regain control of this situation but they're treading water the entire program listen this whole thing is treading water he's failing and he's failing quickly it's tanking we go to a commercial break where oliver exposes something incredibly personal he really spills the beans watch just you spill your beans he lets darius know that they're both monsters oliver ross has killed someone in the vietnam war He tells Darius how it made him feel, how it smelled, the moment, how beautiful the person was. He gives this incredible amount of detail. You've got something very similar to Robert Shaw telling the story of how they delivered the bomb in Jaws, the wreck of the USS Indianapolis, this emotion-invoking story. And Granger Hines is just giving everything here. There's nothing else that he could possibly give. It's just pushing every single emotion And the thing that's unique is this happens to be, to me, I think, more frightening. His delivery and the way he decides to tell this story than anything that Darius has said the entire time. Despite Darius' murders being absolutely brutal and vicious and disgusting, there seems to be almost a sympathetic nature to him. Uh, The way he even tells the story, it doesn't seem to invoke any form of... of absolute cruelty despite his murders being incredibly cruel and vicious. But when Oliver tells his story about killing a young girl in Vietnam and how beautiful he can even remember her face being to this very day, there's something cold. There's something that stops you in your tracks and makes you wonder about somebody that has reflected on this their entire life. Probably the only source of pride this one person has had now, this takes us back to the whole pen thing because he keeps talking at the beginning of the movie about his, how his dad gave him this pen and that there's no way that he can record without it, something that is incredibly personal, almost like a soul. You know, I mean, you just have this idea, this retrospective look that he loves this so much, it really is the encapsulated idea of his entity. He can't even perform without it because it means so much to him. It's like a token of good luck, but nonetheless something he needs to have. Oliver's reflection on this person he killed in the Vietnam War almost has that that same height as the pen, that he almost regards, that he regards this memory as something as important as this pen, this trophy, this personalization. He defines himself by something like this. He had nothing else outside of killing this person, and he tells Darius that it made him feel like a god. It gave him the most immaculate amount of control, almost echoing things that Darius has told us earlier that he was laughed at, that he was belittled at for by Oliver Ross. Now we know that the entire time Oliver has been sitting there listening to Darius speaking, he's been creaming his jeans. He's been thinking about this, that he is maybe even envious to a certain extent, that this is something that he might crave, not being a serial murderer, not being on death row, but the power that is held behind being able to kill people, the power that is held behind being able to extinguish the life force of people. It's something that both of these characters say makes you feel like a god. Obviously, it's something both of these people wish to obtain—not necessarily being a god, but feeling like a god. All the while, this is happening. Rhonda is screaming into the mic, "Just, just stop! Don't tell the story! What are you doing? You, you, you are over the line! Over the line, Smokey! Over the line!" And she's letting him know, "This, this—you can't do this!" And he has no regard. There, the mask truly is off. There's nothing left at this point. Oliver hasn't maybe accepted failure, but he knows if it's going to go bad, he's going to fucking blow this place up. He's going to take everyone out with him, and he's going to do it with as much balls as he can. So this is off screen. You know, we're not live on TV. He's telling Darius this again as he's done throughout the movie with motivation to trigger him, to make him say something, to cause him to become this rabid dog they've been hoping for the entire time. But guess what? (laughs) It doesn't do anything. And it's not so much a spar. I mean, this is a battle in life and death because it is certain one of them will be dying by the end of the night, no matter what. Darius soaks it all up. He knows the company he's keeping. He sees right into Oliver's soul at this point. The whole speech paints a very, very clear picture as to who Oliver is. It's clear Darius has really gotten to Oliver. He's really gotten into him, under him, everything, into his soul. This misogynistic vile, power-hungry man who sees himself as something more something better something better than Tidman but Ross can't even stomach his own story and he vomits when finishing telling and I'm sure all the booze and prescription drugs on top of that probably played a hand he's so disgusted with himself he's so disgusted with the power he's so disgusted with the situation that literally just he can't even keep his own guts inside of himself. Darius has been able to discuss life and death killing people, stomping on an old woman's head. He's been able to discuss this with the exact precision that somebody like Laurence Olivier could have done Shakespearean lore. He he just had no problem doing it. There was a fluency, there was a normality, there was a naturality to it because this was his world and this was his existence. This was the reality that Darius has accepted as to where Oliver has hidden his entire life behind bravado, behind an assumed persona. And when you get down to the deep core of who he is, the slimy, nasty core of what this man is all he's ever relished is being able to have power over other people the moment he took life from somebody it's all he's been able to contemplate think of even his career moving forward and becoming the biggest and the best and i'm i'm goddamn no one's going to make my tv show look bad it's being able to hold that power over people this person is a sociopath this person oliver ross is dangerous. Oliver realizes there's blood in his vomit and he excuses himself once again to get some composure. He's not doing very well. Immediately, Rhonda begins to tell him what an asshole he really is. She knows he's drunk. She knows that he couldn't even make it through this entire situation without drinking. That he's a failure. He's an embarrassment. pretty much degrading him in every way she can. While in the bathroom, struggling to pee while arguing over the headset with his ex-wife and director, he begins to see Darius' face in the reflection in the mirror he's standing in front of. And this, too. Let's just bring it up now. So, I mean, there's a way that you can look at this. And I don't think it's a part of the movie. I don't think this was intentional. And, uh, you know, I just think it's something that's left open from writing and and. the the last part of the movie does begin to get a little bit muddled. You've got all this focus on the pen. It's at the very beginning of the movie. You've got this very long, drawn-out scene about he needs the pen, he has to have the pen. can't do the interview without the pen. Later on, you've got him showing it to Darius, almost taunting him with it. And then you move into this sequence where he moves to the bathroom and he starts seeing Darius's face in the reflection. So, I mean, you could take that he's been discussing this demon and this is sort of a supernatural thing that he really has gotten into his head and that... The pen is a personalization. The pen is almost ownership. It's something that so much stock is put into and so much value has been put into by Oliver himself that being able to own that, being able to hold that would be like having somebody's soul or having an essence of of who they are, having a piece of them. So you've got the whole—and and, and really, to me, clarifying— I think the idea is is just psychotic babble, you know, Darius is talking about this demon and how he can show it to him, and what we have is is just a a story of emotion, a story of characters, and a story of dialogue. Oliver's in the bathroom, he he's being tormented. He's being tormented almost as he has tormented Darius throughout the entire film, but now it's suddenly mental. So I myself am more than likely being very confusing with this statement. I don't think that there is an inherent supernatural subplot when it comes to the end of this film, but it it really is something that you could form on your own or that you could take as an explanation for some things because I, I really feel that there were plot devices that are used that have no explanation, and I don't understand the point to doing so. And I brought up, you know, when you show a gun in a film, that, that usually means the gun is going to be used. So much is is spent on this pen. And we're about to find out if it actually has any meaning to the story. So all night, Diana Franklin's Rhonda Cox has been pleading with Granger Hines' Oliver Ross. So she snaps and for like the fifth time really lets him have it. But this is unlike all her other, you're pathetic, you you can't get this done, you're a drunk rants. She starts getting personal. Oliver has mentioned earlier in the movie that he had five children, all of them from his first two marriages. One of his first two marriages happens to have been Rhonda Cox. Their discussion gets increasingly personal, so personal that Oliver doesn't notice somebody else is in the bathroom. They begin discussing their child. We have another scene, I've made notion to this several times, that Darius began the interview before Oliver even had the chance to do so. That information now all of a sudden makes sense. Darius considers himself a monster, a fuck-up, something he's been told his entire life, and he asks Oliver, Did you have any fuck-ups? Were any of your kids' fuck-ups? And the discussion in Oliver's ear becomes about their child and their loss and how he was never there and how he had to drink and how he could never be around. He was so inept he couldn't even see that their child had a drug problem. They're fighting viciously, and the inmate that's in the bathroom with him is assuming all these fuck yous and I can't stand you and I hate you are being directed at him. This character named Popeye we first see at the very beginning of the film. The warden explains after he's seen out where other inmates are all locked in that he's nothing to worry about. He's got a mop and bucket, so, you know, we can kind of assume that he's an elderly inmate, mind you. That he's, you know, gotten some freedom to tidy up. Because apparently, not only looks, but good behavior can be deceiving. Pissing blood and yelling curses. Darius Tidman's voice deep inside of his head taunting him like a schizophrenic, his ex-wife yelling at him all the same about their deceased son, Oliver just doesn't see Popeye the Mop Man approach. And he's offended at this point, pretty much like every single person that has encountered Oliver throughout this story. Probably his entire life. Everyone that encounters this man, it's gotta be a a very unpleasant experience. And despite the vulgarities actually not being thrown out at him, Popeye breaks his mop over Oliver's head. He's standing with his dick in hand, pissing blood, screaming, fuck you, over his earpiece to his wife. But this dude just doesn't know what's going on. He was working and cleaning and, you know, going about his prison orderly business and has just taken all of this incredibly personally. The wrong place at the wrong time. But this takes us back to something at the very, very beginning of the movie. Right before the interview begins, Oliver Ross says to Darius, I want you to just look at me like, you know, you're going to kill somebody for the last time before. And he trails off as Darius becomes interested. Before what? Obviously, he's making a reference to his execution. But at the very beginning of the film, Oliver asks, just look at me like you're going to kill somebody for the last time. And essentially throughout all of these acts. That's just what Darius has done. Now we re-enter that whole aspect of the supernatural idea, which, uh, I'm gonna stress again, it's not there. It's not like a relevant part of the movie. It's just a way that you could take things with your observations. And also, a lot of confusion for me. You know, I'm I'm reaching at straws here because I have some questions for the end of this movie. I, I just don't quite understand some of the plot devices that we were shown. We're about to get into that, though. Meanwhile, we cut away to Darius and that goddamn pen, But she quietly reaches for and grabs. And this is a back and forth between shots of Oliver and Darius reaching for the pen while Oliver is being beaten over the head with this mop. Rhonda hears the commotion, but she just has no idea what's going on at this point. We cut back to Darius admiring the pen and looking at Oliver's name engraved on it before he tucks it into his shirt sleeve. And at this very moment, we cut to Oliver being viciously stabbed by Popeye with the mop handle. So, you know, you have this idea of this possession, that this pen was something so incredibly important to him that once it was left out, once Darius was able to touch it, to grab it, I mean, it's it's more than a trophy. I think you have something literally like possession, and I mean that in the sense of this was a possession that was incredibly important to Oliver, and it was something that literally had his essence his embodiment inside of it his career his work really focused on him being able to have this pen whenever he was able to do an interview whenever he was able to work you you can kind of translate and have this like grasping at straws supernatural thing that so he grabs the pen and once he tucks it away and it becomes part of his possession it ends the life force of oliver ross i don't know i'm not saying that's something that's in the movie Unfortunately, we get to this point and a lot of things don't pay off. We've got this whole thing with the pen and we've had it since the beginning of the movie, but we know that Darius is going to be executed shortly after this. So what, he stabs a guard or or somebody else? And it's, it's most certain Oliver is dying. He's been stabbed like eight times in the chest with a broken mop handle. He's bleeding to death in this bathroom. This was the final interview. I get confused here, though, because I just don't understand what the emphasis was uh, being so strongly used with this pen and the overall meaning. I mean, you can take it, as I just said, with literal possession. Darius being able to take something from him. But... What's what's the point? He's about to die. He's not going to survive this night. Neither of them are. I know I'm definitely reaching with that, but the clarity isn't there. But I don't think it's a significant problem. The idea may have looked great on paper, but I just don't think it fluently develops anything else for the story. And overall, it just confuses me. You have something so strong as this, and you figure it's going to be you know, a great weapon. You assume it's going to be heavily used throughout the movie and, and just pays off nothing. It doesn't go anywhere. It's not problematic, I just feel something more could have been done with this, or completely omitted. The pen overall truly shows to not have any overwhelming importance. Because we don't know what he does with it afterwards. I mean, Darius has the pen, but is there any meaning to it? Is there any importance to what happens after this story? We've got the story, and that's really the focal point. But this is the end. It's the end of them all. It's the end of everyone. The show, Oliver Ross... Darius Tidman. I mean, Oliver Ross bleeds to death in this prison bathroom. Shortly thereafter, Darius is going to be executed. Rhonda's career's over. The show she's directing and working on, nothing's going to come from this. This is horrific. This is the absolute end. This was the final interview. What we have here is a monster movie. I mean, truly and, and really, this is just like Frankenstein. Oliver Ross was a monster created on his own accord, created on his own fame, his own ego, his own life, his own faults to not accept himself, his constant drinking, his constant substance abuse just to be able to fill some sort of void, the fallacy of who he is. He's a monster, as well as Darius, a murderer of over 20 people. No matter what his philosophy may be, no matter how quaint and beautiful it might seem, that he's helping people cross over to the other side. This is a vicious. Murderer, somebody that has extinguished the life force of many, both of them sitting across from each other. It, it's like Frankenstein versus Dracula. It's a monster versus monster movie, which is something I think is very, very unique because Fred Vogel, his favorite film, something that is a, a basis for his love of horror and passion, is Frankenstein, a monster movie in itself. The granddaddy of them all. A movie about a man who couldn't control his own creation. And I think you have something overwhelmingly similar with Oliver Ross. But he is Dr. Frankenstein and the monster all together. Darius is just a product of society. So we're getting to the end of this episode. A while ago I said something to the effect of the final interview kind of reminds me of a Cassavetes type thing. Here's what I mean by that. John Cassavetes was an artist that, that many try and replicate and most horribly horribly fail at But what he specialized in and made him so incredible is these stories that were focused on people these stories that were focused on emotion and the characters that you are introduced to them in the midst of their life their previous story doesn't matter who they are what they've been through all of these uh, previously established things it's not significant What's significant is what's going on and the emotion and the driven emotion from these characters in the situations that they're in. This is what you have in, in in this film. I think it's really reminiscent of something like the work of John Cassavetes because everything is dialogue and character driven. And if you can't get behind that, you can't get behind the characters and you can't feel emotion, then you're absolutely blind and you're lost. And that's more than likely because you came into something for the entertainment, for the shock, for the gore, for the special effects or something that was going to give you emotions in a different way. And that's fine. You know, Shock, horror, fear, those are all very valuable and valid emotions, especially when it comes to art. But this movie is really reminiscent of something like a woman under the influence, a story that is pure emotion, a story that is introducing us to these characters we know absolutely nothing about for about two hours, making us watch and witness and deal with them. And then when it ends, it just ends. The story doesn't end. What we're being shown ends. We don't know what's going to happen after this. Darius could go on a bloodbath with that pen and stab the living, loving shit out of every guard and everybody else he comes in contact with. We don't know what Diane Franklin's going to do or the rest of this crew or even what happens, how this broadcast is handled. Does it go to one of the other hosts? Does it just stop? Who knows? The emotion, the commitment to that emotion, and, and the power behind all of it, I think, is what takes this film and turns it into a rather amazing product. Something incredibly unique and completely different uh, in the catalog of Fred Vogel's career in general, but this itself is one hell of a movie, and it's a fine product. I do implore you. I do hope that you go out of your way to find this. The final interview, movie.com. You can find yourself a copy right there, and it's worth your money. It's, uh, the Blu-ray is fantastic. You've got three discs, including the soundtrack, DVD included, special features out the ass. It's quality. So wrapping this up, yeah, are there things I wish could have been different? Sure. Yeah, I, I would have liked the whole pen thing to make a lot more sense. I'm still at a loss with that. I, I don't know what to make of it. It doesn't really take away from the story, I just feel it takes away from our time. We focus so much on this pen and it doesn't, it's almost like a character of its own and it doesn't do anything. But at the same time, the ending is brutal and it's honest and it, it and it's adequate. And it looks beautiful, it's it's well done and evokes enough emotion in that final frame as the trumpet begins playing and that smooth, cool jazz music fills your ears that there has been loss. Loss of what? I don't know, but regardless, it's, it's loss there's emptiness. We saw a monster movie. We saw two terrible, vicious monsters battle off against one another. It's one hell of a ride. It's well produced. It was a great ride. It was a great feature. I applaud Fred Vogel and I look forward to seeing more films like this from him. Viva la Fred Vogel! So I think that's going to do it for this episode. I had a lot of fun doing this. I hope everyone that listened had as much fun as I did. It's really refreshing to sit down and be able to to focus on something and talk about something so completely different and so completely new. I, I love being able to do something like this. I love being able to focus and, and talk about movies like this. I want you guys, I want you out there that listen to this show To find stuff like this. You know, this just isn't about entertainment. This isn't just filling the void. It's all art, baby. All of this. The whole big thing. All of it's art. And I want you to appreciate something. I want you to have fun. When you sit down and you watch a movie, I want you to hear me in the back of your head because you listen to this show and enjoy what you're doing even more because of that. Be sure to check out thefinalinterviewmovie.com. All one word, thefinalinterviewmovie.com to procure yourself a copy of this. And until next time, the ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. Have a pleasant tomorrow. We'll be back. On the next episode.
0: Dr. Hank, the world's greatest... Physician, scientist, searching for a way to tap into the hidden strengths that all humans have. Then, an accidental overdose of gamma radiation interacts with his unique body chemistry. And now, when Hank grows angry or outraged, a startling metamorphosis occurs. The creature is driven by rage and pursued by an investigative reporter.
1: Mr. McGee? don't make me angry you wouldn't like me when i'm angry
0: an accidental explosion took the life of a fellow scientist and supposedly hank the world's greatest as well the reporter thinks the creature was responsible I gave a description to all the law enforcement agencies that got a warrant for murder out a murder which hank can never prove he or the creature didn't commit So he must let the world go on thinking that he, too, is dead until he can find a way to control the raging spirit that dwells within him. Find out what happens next week on the incredible Death by DVD. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. Death by UHF broadcast from on top of the Blue Crystal Sunshine Mountain, any town USA, with transmitters on top of the Empire State Building. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.